Welcome, 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 housers. I think that's the new term we're using for people that house people and others who enjoy listening to this podcast. Uh, if you're looking for a different podcast, this is on the way home and maybe you're sitting in traffic and you want to kill 20 to 30 minutes, this is a podcast for you. Um, or maybe you're just sitting down on a Saturday with a cup of coffee. You care about housing, health, uh, and all the things wrapped around that. Uh, this is the right place to be. We are so fortunate on this podcast to have some amazing people from across Canada, from around the world, who are stepping up to the challenge we face uh, within this housing crisis, offering solutions, helping us work through this, looking uh, towards a future that is much brighter. And today's guests are, are you know, no exception to that. Incredible people doing incredible work. I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, listen, we throw around a lot of numbers when it comes to homelessness. Uh, this week, we saw out of London, Ontario, they were talking about 250,000 Canadians. It's usually the estimated number of people experiencing homelessness across the country. The research out of London, Ontario said they believe it is triple that number. So 750,000 Canadians. Um, and that's not great news, but we've always known that the, the numbers of the point in time count um, might be a little thin before. But when we talk about numbers lately, we talk about housing, especially in Ontario, the number 23 uh, rings rings a big bell, right? And that's because of the, the More Homes Built Faster Act. It has like a bit of a caveman ring to it, More Homes Built Faster, um, but better known as Bill 23. And that has just been uh, pushed through in Ontario. And lots of people have lots to say about this bill. There's you know, some people that are very, very happy about it uh, and others uh, not so much. And so we have with us today, we have John Fox, who's a managing partner at uh, Robbins Appleby and Lelani Farha, who's the global director at The Shift. Both are lawyers. And what do you get when you get two lawyers on this podcast? A great podcast. That's what we have. So Lelani and John, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And you've both been on the podcast before, so you're a return guest. Unlike Saturday Night Live, we don't have Five Timers Club jacket or a little robe, but we'll, we'll work on something, maybe a mug. Uh, the first question we always ask, uh, because it's important and because it's a little different for everyone, and uh, Lelani, we'll start with you and then go to John, and that is, what does home mean to you? Yeah, so these days, I guess, I'm starting to finally after so many years of work in this area i'm finally understanding home as a very profound thing i actually think home is a, a kind of feeling and if i had to describe it in more material terms i'd say it's whatever place brings you peace security and dignity wow that is beautifully said john thoughts although it's tempting just to say Yes, um, I, I, uh, I I would express it as 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 this. It's it's a, a place where where I feel uh, safe and secure and can recharge uh, to meet the, the challenges of the next of the next day. And uh, and I uh, one thing about being in this in this sector, we we treasure that all the more because we know uh, that many people can't take that for granted. Also well said. So today, as we, we talk about home, um, there is, of course, a push across the nation. The federal government, I believe, has talked about building 3 million homes in the next 10 years. Uh, in the province of Ontario, the goal is 150,000 
homes per year, up from, I believe, we, we around 100,000. Now, um, our minister, uh, Steve Clark of Municipal Affairs and Housing, said uh, this act claimed to address the province's severe housing crisis by cutting through the red tape involved in the development process with the goal of getting 150,000 homes built each year while we uh, touch on the areas of concern around this bill. Um, and I, I mentioned a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping we can uh, really start with both of you as what are what are the positive? Who are the winners coming out of this? Because there, there definitely are some winners. And, and let's look at like there's, you know, obviously we need housing, but what are some of the positives? Who are the winners? Uh, John, we'll start with you this time. Well, it's, first of all, it's, it's a really big act is one of the most important things to recognize because and it's easy to get confused because you'll hear about many different aspects of it, whether it's the green belt, housing and so on. It's binding philosophy is pretty simple. Their housing starts today in Ontario are about 75,000 housing starts a year and housing starts uh, that you need in order to achieve 1.5 million homes over that period is 150,000 150, starts. So it's a pretty big challenge in and of itself to double the number of houses created in Ontario every single year. And if, you, if that's your starting point, then you walk through this bill and you say, okay, every single thing we're doing here is to make it easier and less expensive to create uh, housing and so it, it, in that regard, you know the, the, the at, at a certain level, the the supply is going to help people acquire homes at different different places, particularly those who are living on the margin who just barely can't make a home uh, purchase or rent a home today. So if you add supply, then it should, in theory, push down prices at that market level. So if you're looking for winners, certainly you can you can look to the development industry because it will make it less expensive and easier to start and they start when they can make money. So when you're, which is appropriate. Uh, and, and so they will be able to bring more properties into development, which is the intent of, of the act. Thank you for that. And Lilani thoughts. Well, I was going to start in a different place. I was going to start with, with Mr. Clark's words. You know, uh, he says that the act aims to address the province's severe housing crisis by cutting the red tape and building 150,000 homes uh, per year. So I think for me, he misdiagnosed the crisis. So he, he implies that the crisis is caused by a lot of red tape and caused by a lack of generalized supply. I mean, general supply, right? And I, I just don't agree that those are, in fact, significant causes of the housing crisis. Um, I think red tape is a problem, and obviously it's good to get rid of some of the sort of stupid and cumbersome and expensive uh, rules um, that are inhibiting some um, development. But I think that what's really at the root of the problem is, is far more systemic than um, what's been diagnosed here. And I mean, it's everything from exceptionally low social assistance rates to the fact that there is no social housing and no deeply affordable housing for people uh, with the lowest incomes. And so this <laughs> doesn't go to what I've just diagnosed at all. And then, you know, you mentioned these the huge numbers of people living in homelessness. Another report came out this week from 
the Canadian Centre on Housing Rights, which used to be CIRA, the Centre for Equality, Rights and Accommodation, and they've diagnosed a huge discrimination problem in the rental housing sector. And so even if there is a, good, a lot of supply and a lot of rental supply, if we have a major issue around discrimination where uh, BIPOC uh, tenants can't rent because of their characteristics or people with disabilities or single mothers. Uh, I don't see how any of uh, what Mr. Clark has, propo has proposed through Bill 23 uh, would address that. Yeah, it's a fair, fair points. And I could say from a service user, Blue Door, absolutely to those points of when we stand up our clients against uh, the, the you know, middle income earner, Right, trying to rent if maybe their credit, maybe they're from BIPOC community, uh, and there's other challenges going on. Uh, it just, uh, I mean, it's a business for someone, right? They're going to look at that, and it comes down to, to numbers. And you're right, when we're talking about 15% of Ontario's population receiving Ontario Works or ODSP, um, Global Mail put out a while back that said if you're looking at 30% of your uh, income as the threshold for what you should spend on housing, you need $90,000 to afford a one-bedroom apartment in the GTA. Now, that might be a bit of a stretch, but it's huge. And if you think of social assistance rates, people that are, you know, with that, having $7,000 to $13,000 a year um, in total income, the gap is huge, right? So we're not addressing that through this. And I think, John, we've talked about this before, even with the, before there was the uh, Affordable Housing Task Force, and I think that was misnamed, that was, Lelani, to your point, let's not confuse supply and affordability. To John's point, there is some overlap. If you have more supply down the line, you know, the theory is that things become more affordable, but affordable for who? Uh, most likely not uh, are our most vulnerable, um, <laughs> of, of course. So, you know, we've heard a lot about this um, in the media over time. This, this was pushed through, and it was at a time, too, when across Ontario, uh, many councils had just been elected or re-elected. They were coming to their first meeting. There was not a lot of time for deliberation or thoughts. Usually your first meeting as a council is pretty ceremonial. Uh, you're not doing a lot of work. Councils were forced into action. And, and we're not happy uh, with this current design. Uh, with, with this current design. Uh, I, I want to talk with both of you. Uh, what are the pieces in there? from municipalities that you've seen and heard about that really have them uh, up in arms. Uh, well, Lanny, we'll start with you this time, then go to John. Yeah, although I think John is probably better to speak to this than I am, but, um, you know, I think municipalities are really concerned about uh, the way in which development charges uh, are dealt with in the bill and the waiving of um, development charges, uh, which is money that actually normally would go to a municipality to provide the much needed infrastructure to support the kind of development that the bill is trying to um, trigger and you know everything from water and sewage to roads um, and uh, for the city of Toronto for example uh, development charges um, were used in fact to support other affordable housing efforts that the city was making. And so with a big uh, drop in income, cities are saying, you know, what are we going to do? Now, if I recall, I did read a story and you two are probably know better than me because I don't read Canadian news as much as I should. Um, but uh, I saw a story saying that um, the government is saying that they are going to make 
um, monies available to cities, but I don't know what that's going to look like and will it be the, the amount that cities have come to rely upon through development charges? Yes, that's. Uh, I think you're referring to the affordable. Uh, they did. They did something uh, at federal. Yes, where they were going to uh, roll some money to the municipalities. We don't know how much. We don't know if it's going to match or make people whole. It's uncertain, and, and so we, we'd have to hear more about that. John, your, your thoughts on some of the pieces that that really are pushing uh, cool. municipalities' buttons? So, so first of all, the, the the change in development charges isn't an elimination of development charges. It's an elimination of the ability to use a development charge to raise money for housing services was the sort of part of the act which allowed the city of Toronto to keep development charges in reserve and to apply it to affordable development. So today, Michael, for instance, if, if a nonprofit goes out and, and wants financing from the municipality to build, it's going to part of that financing is going to be relief of development charges that would otherwise pay, but also dollars per door um, put into the development, which has been funded when it's coming strictly from the city of Toronto or other municipalities through a development development charges. So in, in truth, it's, it's not so much that it's development charges per se, it's that there's not only are they taking away that revenue, there's no replacement for it. So, you know, it's a fair thing for the development industry to say development should pay for development charges should pay for development. And, you know, we may bicker over whether or, or disagree over whether housing services is should be part of the infrastructure of, de of development. I can disagree with the development community on that. But at the end of the day, the source of money doesn't matter so much to me as that the money is there. And so often the response of the of the province to that, when you look at the act, is to say, well, it's okay because we've replaced that by taking all development charges off nonprofit housing. So if a nonprofit does a development now, there are no development charges whatsoever. But if you do 100% affordable housing now, you would enter into an agreement with the with the municipality in which you would be declared a municipal capital facility and you would not pay development charges anyway. And so the net the, the net result is likely a, a reduction in the revenue line to any nonprofit development which makes it harder to create low income income housing through the through independent construction of nonprofits. So my the biggest concern I have with this bill is that while I, I like supply too, I think it is important to have and it is important to juice the industry in in on in Ontario, it's the role of the government to, to ensure that some of that supply is being delivered at different income levels. And the collection of the that that collection of ac of actions that I just went through makes it more difficult for nonprofits to create. And if you go to a couple of other elements which upset municipalities, they would be the changes in inclusionary zoning, uh, which I'll get into if you ask me, but also um, the, the uh, mandate to the minister to review the uh, rental replacement rules, which really only applies in the city of Toronto, but essentially means that if, if you knock down uh, a series of, of buildings, for example, think of a strip mall in Toronto, very classic to have a strip mall in Toronto with some residential up above it. If there's more than six units being knocked down, there's an obligation to replace those rental units. And that's an understood cost in the city of Toronto for all developers doing city of Toronto. And as you look around, you can see that it's not slowing anybody down. So why uh, take that away uh, when it preserves affordable rental in place. One of the things that is very important for us to remember is that even today uh, we lose more more rental units that are defined as affordable just through 
through the, the development process than we can create by investing. And so that combination of things of not retaining existing rental and make it more challenging for municipalities to engage in the funding of new uh, below market rental uh, results in, in, a, in a problem for this bill and being able to address the need of housing at lower, lower income brackets, where, by the way, there has been a housing crisis for longer than anyone in government has been calling housing, uh, housing crisis a crisis. In fact, when you said that, it's funny, um, I recently heard uh, Anna Bilal talk about that. She said, crisis has been around forever. She said when she uh, took office in 2010, no one cared. She couldn't get, like, the, the media wasn't picking up on it. She said, in fact, it wasn't until the crisis hit the middle class that it now becomes a real issue and, and a contentious thing. Um, I was standing beside you when she said that, uh, Michael. <laughs> And, and she's, she's, she's right, because the, the nature of the problem, the place where it now pinches, has moved up. The other thing to remember about this bill is so this is the government doing what it can. It, it's not as though this bill alone changes the dynamics of, of housing construction today. It's still much more expensive than it was three years ago to build. It's harder to borrow money, and there's still a labor shortage. So all those things are playing into this difficulty. Uh, yeah, and it's good. I was going to ask you, so, so there's, um, it pushes the creation of 150,000 homes. It is, it is obviously uh, focused on supply uh, and not on affordability. There's not really any mention on how it will help solve homelessness. I don't think, you know, obviously that's the focus. In fact, there's pieces of this that critics have said will increase homelessness and decrease affordability. It will actually kind of do the opposite. Any thoughts on that either? Well, I think John talked about um, this, the fact that uh, units can be, affordable units can be uh, demolished and not replaced. Well, who's living in our most affordable units at this point in time? It's people with the le mostly people with the least amount of money. And so if we're not replacing those units, then where are those people going to go and what's the downward spiral from there? Um, so I think, you know, that's just one example um, I think, you know, I, I actually think it's worse than, than we say in that, like at a time when there's a known housing crisis and when affordability has been identified as a key characteristic or unaffordability, a key characteristic of the housing crisis, how could the government defend its decision to allow for, uh, affordable units to be demolished and not replaced. I mean, it, what, what's exceptionally disturbing from a human rights point of view, which is of course the frame that I use to analyze laws and policies, is there's a principle that we call non-retrogression in human rights law. And it's basically the idea that, you know, rights are supposed to be implemented progressively. And so every time you you ratchet up and you, you get to a new level of enjoyment of a human right, you can't, as a government, take steps that are backward, that would put us backward. And obviously, that provision that allows for uh, the non-replacement of affordable units that are demolished uh, is a retrogressive measure. And in human rights law, that's actually like one of those, there's certain things in human rights law you like, no way around it, it's a violation, and it's really bad. It's a bright line in human rights law, that's one of them, non-retrogression. And so um, it's actually pretty shocking that um, Bill 23 would, you know, 
proceed uh, with that provision in it. Um, you know, and there was tons, you know, in the deputations, there was a lot of pushback on that very particular uh, article. Human rights law would say you have to replace it one for one. If, if you, you can demolish it, but you have to, one, make sure the tenants have somewhere to go in the interim when you're building new, and two, that they can return to a unit of similar space and at similar value or cost. And so, um, you know, all of that is just, um, well, was clearly not of interest, but obviously that can easily lead to homelessness. I don't think people realize, like if you're evicted or you lose your affordable home, where, where do you go in the city of Toronto, for example? Um, everything in your neighborhood is likely too expensive for you, so you get pushed out. You hear of people ending up in, you know, shelters or in rooming houses or in their cars or, you know, they avail themselves of family and friends until they can't any longer. And it is, it can be a quick slope down into homelessness. I mean, I don't want to be too alarmist, but that that is a reality. When you start talking to people living in homelessness, as Michael, you, you'll know this and John, you'll know this. Um, everyone lived somewhere before they were homeless <laughs> and often it was in an affordable unit. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. I mean, I've, I've heard numbers, when you talk about uh, the supply, I've heard numbers that for every new build, we're losing 15 to crumbling infrastructure, uh, renovations, that kind of thing. Um, I've heard seven to one as well, but definitely we are not, building new It's just is not the only answer. We have to maintain uh, what we have. And we've seen that through the Toronto Community Housing a number of years back having to really scramble and get the dollars because well, there are thousands of units in need of repairs and, and the dollars to do so, right? Uh, so it's not just about building new, but uh, but maintaining as well. Uh, what about what we talk about? I know um, inclusionary zoning has, has been brought up and, and you know, uh, there's different kind of versions that people have that or don't, um, but the, this bill really kind of throws that out. Uh, any Any comments on that? I'll make comments on that for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad I'm not the guy who spent five years of my life figuring this out for the city of Toronto, only to wake up one day and say, see Bill 23. Um, so inclusionary zoning uh, takes a real hit here in this, you know, if you compare the numbers, for example, the, the city of Toronto's policy was a, was a 15 to 20% since at its most in, in the ownership world uh, was a 99 year commitment and the the access accessibility to those units was based on on income not a, a average market rent measure the the legislation changes that puts a cap on the set aside to five percent uh puts a uh, limit to, on the years to 25 and returns to a measure which had been used by in affordable housing for some time namely 80 percent of average market rent for the city of of, of toronto so it is a measurable, more easily digestible chunk for a, develop, a, a developer to take at this, at this point in time. And there are really those who argue that 
that this, the city's um, approach was too much too fast and should have been um, sort of phased in a bit a bit more. And, and it is absolutely fair to say that that it would have been better to bring inclusionary zoning in five years ago when we had more stable interest rates and, and better cost structures. But be that as it may, you can see the extent to which as a regulatory answer to what Leilani has been talking about, where the city of Toronto takes a progressive measure, that this is a direct step back. So instead of saying, instead of saying these units are going to be um, based on an average income in Toronto, it's based on average market rent. So if you can appreciate it, the lot turns on where you draw the line around the around the area that is defining average market rent. So the average market rent in the city of Toronto is such that 80% of it is market rent in many parts of Toronto and probably above market rent in many parts of Toronto. So you'd be getting concessions for not really providing greater affordability in those parts of the city. So there's there's a lot of worry about that. And certainly the, the municipalities would be right to be upset at, at, at having had that policy um, over overturned and like these things are cumulative so it's really a collection of okay how does the city deliver then units at below market when successively inclusionary zoning and then rental replacement and their ability to fund nonprofits is sort of systematically removed from them in this way and let, let me be clear so i don't want to go back to what i've said before like the overall direction to create supply in my mind is a good is a is a good thing and the government should be looking to do that it's, it's the responsibility of government to push the supply into levels of income that, that are not going to be able to get housing at, at market rates. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I was just watching uh, in uh, Underwood from Habitat, she was talking about from start to finish that a lot of the projects with Habitat, who is a known entity, has that kind of political power and, and, and has the, the resources seven years from start to finish, right, to create housing. Um, so, you know, the hope is we talk about moving things along faster. I think, well, Lenny, you said, of course we can. We need to do that. There are some silly things getting in the way of, you know, getting things approved, taking three years to approve plans, et cetera, et cetera, right, going through. Uh, but one can see uh, why, uh, you know, people would be so, so upset about this. Now, one of the parts is most... Uh, it's kicking up a lot of controversy, of course, is during the election, I think it was back in 2018, uh, Doug Ford, it said there, there was some recording of him talking about uh, the green belt opening it up. He, he said, absolutely not. We're not going to touch the green belt. Bill 23, um, they are opening up the green belt. Um, is this necessary? Is this a big part of it? Um, you know, why are people... I'm asking you questions that, that sound silly, but like, why so upset? Like, if we're trying to build housing, is it necessary to use all means possible? We're in a crisis, right? Go ahead, Lilani. Sorry, getting all these lots of boxes coming up on my screen. My apologies. Um, Michael, if you don't mind, can I just go back to the inclusionary zoning thing, which I, course, John explained yeah. it. John's answer to that was so explained it so clearly so thank you John for that um, it's so out of step with what other cities nations etc are doing around inclusionary zoning to limit it to 5% at 25 years take for example now this may be the high water mark and it's and we don't know how it's going to turn out but in Munich in Germany last year they passed a law that requires 
60% inclusionary zoning, 60, that's six zero. And of it, um, a huge proportion has to be social, and then a smaller portion has to be affordable, and then a smaller portion that is middle, middle income. Um, so that's how they've divvied it up. But 60%, and, and where Premier Ford and Mr. Clark come up with 5%, it's just like they pulled it out of a hat, or maybe they sat with developers and that's what developers whittled it down to. And 25 years, did they know something about poverty in this in this country that I don't know? I mean, I, I don't know. I was the executive director of an anti-poverty organization for 12 years, and I don't see poverty ending in, in, in 25 years. Uh, so where would they come up with this 25 years, right? Th these are just sweet numbers for developers. Um, so I, I just wanted to put that out there because it's it's just out of step. If you look, most people now are using Montreal as one of the best examples in the country for inclusionary zoning. The way they've done it is 20-20-20, 20% social, 20% affordable, 20% family units. And if a developer balks at that, they have they can they can say no, but they have to pay into a fund for affordable housing, and then the city then uses that money to build more affordable housing. So I, I just wanted to put that out there. And the other thing I wanted to say about supply, and I'm sorry, I'm derailing us here. I mean, green belt's important, but uh, and I know John's dying to talk about the green belt. Um, but uh, on the issue of supply, what I what I find quite shocking, and this might be too anecdotal for people and not scientific enough but you know like what about existing supply that isn't being used for the right ends to the right ends to help solve the housing crisis and here's the anecdote so a few weekends ago I needed to be in Toronto for one night with my daughter to so we could check out U of T and I went on booking.com to try to find a hotel and the first five or ten listings were hotels the regular ones and then almost every listing after that was a condo being rented on a per nightly basis at 200 bucks a night 150 bucks a night and there were so many of those listings so many so like there's an example like there's supply how could a government creatively harness that kind of supply condos for rent airbnb units that aren't being rented Etc. Etc. So I just put that out there. So that's a, a really important, fair point because, to a certain extent, the supply the supply mechanisms that are being used in Bill Twenty Three need a need a companion piece, and the companion piece is the it all it's all getting used as well as possible. So that can mean Airbnb. It, it can mean a heavy taxation on vacant units. It can mean that 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 kind of thing. Then that companion piece is still not there for Ontario. So we they, they should be looking at at trying to cover that that off. And that it's if you produce a unit that isn't used as a home, you haven't solved anything. Yeah, well said. Thanks for uh, thanks for bringing us uh, back uh, around to that and uh, some good points around uh, supply. Let's go back to the green belt, John. So, so you know, it's it's you can tell my my personal focus because I'm so um, um, alive to the pro forma of the nonprofit developers and probably a little more sympathetic than my friendly Lani to the pro forma of the for profit developers in the immediate here and now, and it's so challenging to actually get a project going. 
that you know, my, my, my sense of the, of, uh, of the green belt is the, the reaction is because Mr. Ford said something different and now there appears to be a push to um, uh, break that promise and, and use up some of the green belt. But I do think some of the, some of the discussion is, is a little uh, more than is, is there. And to the extent that an independent body could swap one piece of environmentally sensitive land for another piece where development makes sense because it's very close, Personally, I have an openness to that, so I'm probably not as as uh, adamant about that as I am about rental replacement and, and and so on. Everybody picks their battles in this in this legislation. Yeah. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, um, I think John and I concur on that. Actually, it's it it's not to say that I think oh yeah, eat up the green belt, um, but maybe it is possible to swap. I don't know. To me, the issue was process. It's as John said, the the premier said one thing and did another. There's this uh, awful feeling that certain people uh, were tipped off and that, that that's a sign of corruption. And that's a very serious charge to have leveled against you if you're premier of a province. Uh, and and let the environmentalists into the conversation and have a proper dialogue, engagement, et cetera, around best uses of the green belt. How can the green belt be saved and used to help solve the housing crisis? Are there other ways, et cetera? So I, I my sense, like, I, I don't know, is the green belt untouchable? It's not for me to say. Uh, yeah, I'm not an environmentalist. I don't know much about the green belt, but it seems to me that there was a very, very poor and potentially corrupt process that un unfolded and that's the problem yes yeah, so i think you both bring up good points is you know you said one thing you did another um i think the other day uh premier ford said hey to the ndp you're hypocrites you did the same thing to uh, and then if you look at the numbers so much lesser extent it was very minimal to what's being proposed now you know i and i gotta think like when you talk about a lot of this when when this is when i look at the design of this bill when you're saying who decide, I, I got to think you have to think that developers sat down and said, or were um, part of the process that were saying, here are my pain points. You know, 25 years, 99 years is too much. The development charges are too high. What, what, you know, what is stopping you from pushing forward harder to get 150,000 homes built? And that was part of the discussion was, you know, around the cost. How do we get costs down? Certainly, when we talk about development charges. I don't hear a lot about, or no one's really talked about those savings being passed down to the end user of, of the homes being built, but uh, it just really is around speed of process. Um, you know, and I, I, I've got to think, like we talked about it, the, the only real winners, and there's, there's some, you know, as John says, supply is good, you know, trickle down maybe some years later, but the real winners out of this have to be the built community, the developers, um, they must be really happy that this is pushing through. Well, we know that's true because we, we hear Dave Wilkes and other representatives of the of the development community say so. But, it, you know, in, in, in fairness, like it is very challenging to get a project off the ground right now. And, but part of the issue in my mind is, OK, that's the pain point now. Why is why are we not talking about this for a certain period of time in order to do that and 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 as a result say we're going to lock in forever um, concessions which are related to a particular crisis that is in existence today. So I, I would have pref 
I, I think these are these are important concessions to a certain extent, but they should be part of a longer term plan, which allows us to feel like, why aren't we phasing in more inclusion? If the pain point was it's too much too soon, why aren't we phasing this in over five, six, 10 years, whatever, so that at some point in time we are achieving 10 or 15 percent set asides for that. Like those would be important considerations. And as these things become baked into the, the plan, they become easier to recover. It does mean that if you own land, it's worth less than it was before because it's it costs more to, to build on it and there's less revenue that comes from it. But so what? So I, I think those things should could have been drawn out a little bit better. I think there's a couple other interesting parts of the act which are very positive too, like the the, the density uh, requirements near transit sites, the density along the along boulevards, those are all positive things which allow developers to build. Uh, moving forward towards being able to build six-story and eight-story wood structure buildings, important things for the development community to be able to provide more housing at a cost level that allows them to recuperate a uh, fair return to compensate them for risk, which they definitely take. I'm, I'm a real estate lawyer. I see the risks that developers take all the time, and I've seen some of them have those risks bite them and you don't hear about them anymore for obvious reasons. So th th those were positive pieces in, in, in my, in my view, uh, but the, the elements which don't push or have a plan to push some of the supply over time into lower income brackets is a miss on the part of the government. And I think that they need to reconsider that part. The direction with respect to rental replacement is not an elimination of it today. It's a direction of the minister to give some thought and direction. And I'd like, I hope he will listen to this podcast and reconsider uh, his, you know, the, the initial uh, view, which we, we seem to have and give some thought to the fact that this is not slowing anybody down and it keeps affordable units in the same part of Toronto where they are today. Those are good things. So that's my, I'm going to stop talking about rental replacement and um, uh, for the rest of this podcast though. So you won't have to hear about me on that again but that i think that's an important piece yeah and i i um i can't tell if my is my am i mic'd yes uh sorry <laughs> no pop-up this time um i i very much agree with what john just said um i think michael what's lacking and i think this goes um is in step with what john just said what's lacking is kind of vision like it's like i mean the premier has said you know housing economics 101 supply and demand there's a lot of demand we're going to meet it with supply i mean he said that right which is one erroneous we all know now that housing no is not like does not function uh in the way other commodities function uh it is absolutely not economics 101 and i think you know canada is one of the the best examples of that um but just like a lack of vision of the kind of cities the conservatives want to grow in this province and like john gave the example which i agree more density along transit lines okay well i live in ottawa i live right near the new lrt which has had many problems but nevertheless it's being built and it's cool and they're trying to build more density along the transit line well what kind of density what does that look like well i'll tell you what it looks like in ottawa it looks like a whole bunch of skyscrapers 30 stories totally disproportionate to the area but whatever okay we want more density fine well what what has to anchor a building and this happens in toronto too right when you get those big condo buildings what what do they need anchoring in terms of retail at the bottom well it ends up being some big multinational shoppers drug mart 
Starbucks, a bank, right? And that is money that come, then what that, what that means is the people who are living in those buildings who use those retail, who go into that Starbucks, who go into that shopper's restaurant, their money is going into that business and right out of the community and in fact, out of the country. So like, is that the vision that we have for our cities? I don't know. Like to me, Bill 23 really has no, no vision. The same with the green belt. Like people care about nature and green belts now for a very good reason. We're, we're suffering climate change, right? And the effects of climate change. Where's the vision around that? Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, I, I love, love those points around, you know, it's not, you, you've got to think this through all the way, not part way and charge right through um, uh, with that. Okay, so, so the, the province says, you know what, Lenny and John, you know, we, we're, we're rethinking this, we want to make this better. Sit down, give us your top three thoughts on how could we make this feel better? You know, we, we put it through, but we're still open. We still want to, how, how does everyone benefit? How do we make municipalities a little more whole with this? Um, what are some what are some changes that we can make? Because here's the thing too, is that sometimes I think with society, what we see is, you know, yes, we, we've over-regulated to hell, like everything, right? We put in so many, for good reasons, many times. And then this is an example of let's take off, like swing too much the other way, uh, which is dangerous, right? So so where do we meet? What are your top three? They're sitting down with you. What do you, what do you advise? How do we make this better? You Who go first, start? John. You go first, John. You go first. <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, okay. Well, first I would start by quoting my dad. I would say you, you, you can't have laissez-faire without some savoir-faire to guide it. And I would say, uh, first, uh, existing affordable stock counts, and it needs to be protected one way or another. And there are several ways of, of, of doing that, uh, including its transfer into the nonprofit world or advantageous purchase or any number of other, other things. I've talked ad nauseum about the one-way rental replacement, but there are others as well to protect existing stock, existing stock counts. Uh, second, um, uh, I, I would say that that the creation and um, support of a, of a robust nonprofit community and co-op community is important to create the next level of, of housing. I also don't think that I also think that they should be looking to inclusionary zoning and other methods within the private sector to allow for affordable housing. Remember, affordable housing is not deep housing that solves the issues of people with deep poverty. So within the private space, we have affordable units and then an investment in uh, supportive housing and community housing for those who who, who need it. Uh, I worked at Toronto Community Housing for seven years. I, I know that sometimes there's massive amounts of money that come in and it takes a long time to actually uh, spend it and for people to see it. But be that as it may, everyone who lives there also deserves a safe, secure place to live. And and they, I know they do their best because I've worked there and I know how hard it is and I have a lot of respect for what goes on. But investment in those in those buildings is important as as well. So those would be the three things I'd I'd be leading with. Thanks, John Lillian. That's a hard act to follow. Did you take your three? Qu yeah. <laughs> no. Well, sorta, of, but no. But also quoting his father. I mean, you know, <laughs> if fair, I'm going right? to quote my father, I'm taking us in a totally different direction. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, here's how I uh, what I would suggest. I think that um, 
a, a new Bill 23, maybe Bill 24, uh, would uh, articulate that housing is a fundamental human right as understood under international human rights law and that the province has obligations in that regard and that that would be the foundation for the act and um, or the bill excuse me and um, from there pr some prints so the idea would be that the the bill would produce human rights outcomes and from there there would be a real emphasis on pre preserving existing affordable stock which john has talked about at some length uh, the second would be a requirement of specific targets and timelines for a certain amount of social housing and deeply affordable housing to be provided by nonprofits. Um, and where there's a fail, where targets aren't being met, the government would step in to bolster and support and figure out how to make those meet those targets. Um, and then so the third thing would be provisions around um, using um, inappropriately used uh, existing stock. As John said, uh, if it's not being used uh, for a home, um, then it has to be looked at um, and, and, and repurposed as a home somehow. Excellent. Both of you, some changes, some additions, some complementary pieces, um, and we could have uh, a pretty decent bill that uh, most people would win with. Uh, thank you so much. Any any final thoughts before we wrap up the conversation around this, Bill? Thoughts moving forward? Uh, not really. <laughs> I already used up my dad quote. So yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks, Dad. And um, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it's it's something that gets a lot of people's attention because it's so personal to so many people. But I, I, I do think that one of the critical things to remember is that when, when, we, when we talk about the housing crisis in general, you do have to ask, just as you started with, Michael, whose housing crisis are we actually talking about here? So for the, the people, uh, the men and women who use Blue Door, for instance, they have not seen a change in their housing crisis in the last three or four years. That housing crisis has existed. It continues to exist. And they face challenges which you and your staff are amazingly uh, qualified to, 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 to deal with in, in, in the work that you guys do. And so uh, my, I guess if I had a parting word, it would be to say, to, I, I know that our audience here is, is a fairly Hauser type audience, but I'd ask, and I'd, and I'd say this on, on any other podcast on, I'd ask that you remember when we talk about the housing crisis that su su for supply to work, it has to push down. And for, there's more than just the people in the, at the very edge of the market level that need to be uh, provided with some assistance in order to ensure that we all get accommodation. So if, if you want to you want to take the right the right the totally right wing approach is as long as you don't think people should be out in the cold in the dead of winter and you think you want to do this efficiently, well I can tell you that housing is a lot less expensive than shelters, which is a lot less expensive than hospitals. So this is the kind of thing we have to pay attention to. And if Bill 23 stands alone, then it's not providing that second level. I've said it before, I, I like the bill for the supply parts. I'm looking for the rest. So okay, you're that's... telling me that, that that affordable housing not only saves dollars, but saves lives? There you go. Michael, affordable housing saves <laughs> dollars and it saves lives. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And if you don't mind a plug for you guys, if you go on your website right now, you will be able to save 
lives by buying winter coats as a Christmas present for your clients instead of sending around baskets and stuff like that. It's a great idea you guys have, and I think it's a. And we are we have actually decided today to 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 do that. Go online and buy some winter coats for your folks. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. I mean, I, I have to tell you both. What when I talk to uh, my team, what they are telling me that there's they are seeing this kind of different uh, shelter user too, or um, I mean, you've got people who are working full time in the shelter system and, and they don't need round, you know, around the clock, 24 hour care. It's just, that's their only, you know, that's their only option. They don't have the housing option. They just can't simply afford rents and housing. Right. And we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, so yes, this is, is quite, quite troubling. Um, but listen, with, with both of you and so many others across the country that are doing brilliant work, pushing, uh, and hopefully we will see the actualization of housing as a human right, right? That's that into action. And I know Lelani, you and so many others are are pushing forward with that. And we have uh, great, great faith in that. Uh, good, better times are ahead. I, I truly believe that. I'm an optimist. Um, someone asked me recently, he said, well, you know, why do you stay in this work? <laughs> Which is odd. Um, but I said, because I, I truly believe it's really solvable. You know, it may not be in my lifetime in this work, but it will be hopefully in my lifetime that, and it was, we have a bunch of uh, students said, you're, you're going to do the heavy lifting, but if we could be a part of kind of setting the direction, that would be great. But it is a very solvable thing. I think as we charge forward and, and try and solve some of these things, it has to be planful. It has to be little end of your words with vision, like a, a bigger vision. Um, because, you know, if we don't do that, sometimes we cause more damage than good. Thank you both for your time today. I know you're extremely busy people. Thanks for your dedication to the sector for all you do. Um, and hopefully we will see you again and you'll become members of the Five Timers Club here on, on the way home. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, John. Well, I, I, was, I have to be honest, I was really excited about this conversation um, coming in just because been reading and hearing so much about this. Um, I love the two different perspectives, right? I think, you know, I, I no one has really talked about that the, the lens of housing as a human right and how this is basically ignored uh, through this bill. And for John to unpack so many different pieces of that, uh, sometimes when we, we don't go in depth, uh, we misread, you know, his piece about development charges too. I think um, it's so informative uh, and I'm so grateful for, to, for both of them for the work they continue to do in this sector as change makers. A good time as always. I hope you enjoyed it. I guarantee you'll enjoy our next guest when we see you next time on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.